0: What we're going to do tonight is uh, continue on in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 1, we are going to go through not a genealogy and not just one verse. So if you have been here the last couple of weeks and strained by, by what we've been doing, and we're going to do, do a little bit more verses, a little bit more narrative tonight. And uh, my hope is that through this, we can come to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what the right response is for each of us. So, turn to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read in verse 18, we're going to read through and then we'll kind of circle back and take a look at the verses afterwards. So, Matthew chapter 1, I should turn there too. I didn't introduce
1: myself, my name's also Matt, it's kind of, kind of confusing, there's Matt Deeson, my last name is Karsh. Matthew comes before Mark. See, Deason always just uses an iPad, so he just
0: wipes to it or has it stored in there. Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So for some of you, this, this passage has been taught at least every single year since you have been a believer. Uh, it, I kind of feel like Lioness reading it in the Christmas um, Peanuts version. But for me, this was true. Even, even though my family, we didn't really go to church very much when I was younger. We went on Christmas and Easter, and it was me, my mom, and my brother, and I really, really hated Sunday school, and I would cry, and I would cry. I just really wanted to be in with everybody else because I could just sit there and didn't have to do anything. Um, but for, for my entire life, really up until I was a sophomore in college, I really heard just two passages of the Bible ever, ever really taught. It was this passage on Jesus' birth and then the resurrection because we would go to church on Easter every single year. Just over and over again, I'd hear teachings on the birth of Jesus and the resurrection. But up until really my sophomore year of college, none of that, it, I didn't really understand a whole lot about it. I didn't, didn't really understand the significance of it. And I didn't really, none of it really changed anything about who I was. And so my hope tonight is that we can actually take a look at this and see how it affects us and see this story about Jesus being born to a virgin, why that actually matters to us today in 2016 in Spokane. So in order to do that, and in order to understand this passage, we have to understand a little bit about the cultural background of marriage in the ancient near east. So if you like history, you'll enjoy the next 5 minutes. If you hate history, you're going you have to sit through it anyways. So And I think this is really interesting, and it's helpful for a whole lot of other things in understanding the Bible, too. But in the ancient Near East, in ancient Israel, there's really four or five stages to the marriage. And stage number one was this agreement between two families. So if you think about in Genesis 24, when Abraham sends out his servant to find a bride for his son, there's, there's this sense in which two families are being joined together. And and it was often the father who would go out and look for a bride for his son. And for many of us, that seems really weird and really foreign. Maybe one, because if you've ever had your parents try and set you up with someone, it's been really kind of awkward. Uh, but the second thing is because we, it sounds chauvinistic to us. So like, my dad shouldn't tell me who I have to marry or who I have to date. But what we have to understand in, in a very, very different culture, and really for thousands of years, marriage was much more about two families being joined together And it was about two individuals being joined together. For us, it's, you know, who do I want to marry? Me, myself, and I. Who do I want to spend the rest of my life with? But for people in the ancient Near East, it was much more about the collective joining together of two families. Stage number two in the kind of wedding process is this betrothal or an engagement. But it's way deeper than what we do in engagement today. When I proposed to my wife, I got down on a knee and I asked her if she would marry me. There's a couple of people watching. And we had pictures taken. But the betrothal in the ancient Near East was this big ceremony. It was a covenant. It was an agreement which two families would join in together in this agreement that, hey, these two people are going to get married. And often with this would be the exchanging of gifts, usually money or animals or wheat, crops, that sort of thing. And so it was this contractual agreement. And then after that point, after the betrothal, the groom and his family would go back home and the groom would go back to his family home, and he would build onto the home, either upstairs or off to the side, a new room for the new couple to live in once they actually finalize the marriage. So stage number three is really this groom going away, and there's this long period of waiting. You don't really know how long it's going to take. It takes however long it takes to build that new room onto the house. My wife and I have been painting our new house, I think for like a month and a half now. And some of you have helped us with it, and it's like chisel one thing at a time. So just imagine the, the process of building a whole new room for you to, to live in. It's really You don't really know how long it's going to take until you get done. So there's this indeterminate amount of time where there's waiting, and then stage number four is when the groom would come back in this elaborate procession, and the groom would come back to the bride's house, and they would have the full wedding ceremony, and there would be a wedding feast, and he'd pick up the bride, and they'd go back to their new place where they're going to live together. Well, I share all that, in part so that we can understand what's going on with Mary and Joseph, because we see that they are engaged, they're betrothed to one another, so we have to understand what betrothal really is, but I also share that because of all the wedding imagery that's in the rest of the Bible. You know, for, for years, I have had such a hard time understanding that what it means that the church is the bride of Christ, and what it means for the bride of Christ to be waiting for Jesus' return, Well, what we can see is is very much where Mary and Joseph are. It's this period of waiting. There's this this covenant that's been entered into for the church and Jesus, and there's this period of waiting. And when we see Mary and Joseph in this text, it's this season of waiting. They've been betrothed. They've been committed to one another, and they're legally married. But Joseph finds something out. He finds out that his fiancée is pregnant. And if you're anything like me, if you see an engaged couple, and the fiancé is pregnant, there's some logical conclusions that you draw of how someone becomes pregnant. And for Joseph, who's this, we see that he's a man faithful to the law. He finds out that his fiancé is pregnant, so he makes the logical assumption that she got pregnant from someone, and he knows it wasn't him. So what does he do? If we look down again in verse 19... See, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So he, has, he wants to, to break this agreement because he's faithful to the law. He, he thinks that something wrong has happened, and so he decides to divorce her quietly. And quietly is really interesting, and, and what it points out is something very significant about who Joseph was. Because Joseph has two options in this situation. Joseph can publicly divorce her. He can publicly shame her. He can take her out in the, like, the public square and say, I did not get this woman pregnant. It was not my fault. She did something. I don't know what it was. And he can publicly shame her. He can publicly disgrace her and, in the process, save his own reputation. But that's not what he decides to do. He decides to divorce her quietly, which is this process of coming together with the two families and saying, hey, you know what? Something happened. But it's a quiet It's not public shaming, and yeah, there would probably be some shame associated with it because Mary would have to live with her family the rest of her life. But Joseph makes a conscious decision here that we have to notice because Joseph has a real dilemma of what he's going to do, but Joseph decides to not grasp a legal right he had for the sake of taking a more compassionate and merciful action. And I think there's a lot for us to learn in that, and we'll see more of it later on. But Joseph has a legal right to, to save his own reputation, but he chooses to forego that and divorce her quietly and not, public, and not submit her to this public disgrace and public shame.
1: So if we, if we go back to the text and we look again in verse 20. I lost my... Says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared
0: to him in a dream. So after Joseph had made the decision to, public, or to privately and quietly divorce Mary, of the, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph makes this decision, and then an angel comes to him and says, what you assume happened actually didn't happen. What you think, like the impropriety and the sin that you think happened, that actually didn't happen, and then he tells him, the angel tells Joseph this really crazy thing that what's conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit, which is, which should cause us all to be, what? How is that possible? How in the world can the Holy? How can God conceive in a woman a baby? How does that happen? Well, I don't know. (laughs) This is the short answer. But it's also not a question that only us have ever thought through and struggled with. This is something that the church has always wondered about and always asked questions about. Um, We have a quote from John Chrysostom, who's this 4th century teacher and theologian, and and I love it. He says, Do not speculate beyond the text. Do not require of it something more than what it simply says. Do not ask, but precisely how was it that the Spirit accomplished this in a virgin? For even when nature is at work, it is impossible to fully explain the manner of the formation of the person. How then, when the Spirit is accomplishing miracles, shall we be able to express their precise causes? Lest you weary the writer or disturb him by continually probing beyond what he says, he has indicated who it was that produced a miracle. He then withdraws from further comment, I know nothing more, he in effect says, but that what was done was the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. For this birth can by no means be explained, yet it has witnesses beyond number and has been proclaimed from ancient times as real birth, handled with human hands. For neither Gabriel, who's the angel, nor Matthew was able to say anything more, but only that the generation was from the Spirit. But how from the Spirit? In what manner? Neither Gabriel nor Matthew has explained, nor is it possible. How can the infinite one reside in a womb? How can he that contains all be carried as yet unborn by a woman? How could the virgin bear and continue to be a virgin? All really great questions. We really don't have the answer to. And what it does is it pushes us to continue to seek, to continue to ask, to continue to try and find out exactly how God is at work in the world. It's a mystery to us, but what it causes us to do is that constant pursuit. We don't have the answer, but that's that's actually really okay. Another observation I want to make here, if we look down at verse 21, it says, she, the angel speaking to Joseph, says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the prophet, what the Lord said through the prophet And then he quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14. He says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he, Joseph, gave him the name Jesus. So what's going on here is Joseph is invited into something in the role with Jesus. Normally, the process of naming someone was something that a father did. If you think of all the stories in the Old Testament, the father naming the child, and there's a significance to the name. And God gives gives Joseph this task of naming naming the child. And one thing that I always struggled with when we would go to church around Christmas time was this whole two two name thing with Jesus. Well, is his name Jesus, and he's called Emmanuel? But I, there's nowhere. Wait, wait. How does he have two names? How does that make any sense? And maybe I'm the only one who's ever struggled with it. But it's just always been confusing to me. Because I have one name. My name is Matthew Allen Karsh. I don't have multiple names. But if you think about it in terms of its historical context and in terms of what was common in the ancient world, think of royal names. So if there's any history buffs in the room, Emperor Caesar Augustus, you know, what his, is that his only name? No. He was born Gaius Octavius, so he's born with this name, but then later in life takes on a new name that speaks to his, his position and his role. And that was actually pretty common for kings and royalty in the ancient Near East. What's not common is for a, a baby boy being born to a relatively poor family in, in rural Israel to have multiple names. But as we heard last week, there's something way more to this baby being born than just this normal child what we see in these two names, in the names Jesus and Emmanuel, there's actually something deep going on here. So Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the personal name of God, saves. So Yeshua, or Jesus, literally just means God saves. And we get this note of why he's going to be named Jesus. Because he, in verse 21 will save his people from their sins. So Jesus has this name that actually speaks to his mission and his work and his action in the world, which is really common for names in the Bible. And then there's also this note about a prophecy being fulfilled. It's Isaiah 7.14, where it says, he, the, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this, these two names of Jesus, think of them in terms of kind of like a royal name. There's one that speaks to his mission and his action in the world, and the other one that speaks to his identity, to his origin, who he really is. Because that's really the question, right? Really the question for the original audience of Matthew, and the, the question for us today, is who is Jesus? You know, not only where is he from, and what city was he born in, and who are his parents, and what, what genetic line does he come from, but what are his origins? Is he, is he really just this really gifted teacher? Is he... Is he just this prophet? Where does he come from? What are his origins? And this whole story speaks to the answer to that question, who is Jesus? And I think it makes all the difference for us today to talk about who Jesus is. Because all kinds of people can agree that they like Jesus or like certain things that Jesus said, but when it comes down to it, well, we have to understand if, and what we have to believe or we have to choose whether or not we're going to believe if Jesus is who he says he is. And so the virgin birth, this story, actually speaks to Jesus' identity in multiple ways. So first of all, the, the virgin birth speaks to the divinity of Jesus. The baby, uh, is the, the birth is unlike anything that's ever happened before or happened since. The claim that Jesus was born by the power of the Spirit is a claim about the divine nature, the divine origins of Jesus. It's not just that God made a barren woman give birth or that people were praying for a baby for a long time, but the claim in Scripture is that God himself conceived in this woman a baby. The child was not just of human origin, but he's from God himself. The virgin speaks to the divine nature of Jesus but it also speaks to the full divinity and full humanity of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just like get zapped into existence. He didn't just just show up on the scene, and he didn't just show up as an adult. He was born as a real baby in a real womb with real pain of childbirth, with real tears, with real dirty diapers, or whatever the first century version of dirty diapers were, with real crying in the middle of the night. Jesus was born just like every one of us, it, it's not like he just existed. But God, blending with in, in full in his full divinity and full humanity, it's hard for me to even use language to describe it because it's hard for us to understand. It's like the passage that we, re- or the um, quote I read earlier, it's, it's almost impossible for us to even possibly comprehend or come up with language to use. But what we see and what the church has affirmed for thousands of years is that this, this story, speaks to Jesus' full divinity and full humanity. And then third, this, this story, this, this narrative of the virgin birth speaks to Jesus' identity as the redeemer of humanity. Humanity, all of us have been, have been created in the image of God, but through sin, we've, that, that image has been affected. And what happens in the incarnation, in God becoming human, is that God himself enters into humanity to deliver humanity back to himself. But what's going on is that God refuses to redeem humanity without the participation of Humanity. So through this story of the virgin birth, what we see are these indicators of the origins and identity of who Jesus is. We see that he's not just of human origin, but he's actually from God himself. We see that in the incarnation, God becomes a real human. And like I was saying earlier, with with real human issues. We were talking last night, we played Super Smash Brothers for like five hours last night. Me and Austin and Ethan and Ian. Because the Deesons are about to have their second child, any moment. And the question was, are you, are you like excited and ready for you know, the dirty diapers and the waking up in the middle of the night? And There, there was kind of just a silent response from Matt Deeson. But what we wanted to do is just hang out and spend a little bit of time in, in advance of that because of the, the stress that comes with raising a child. But what, what happens... In this story, is God actually enters into humanity and participates in all of that. And then what we see is that the virgin birth speaks to the significant moment in the redemption of humanity, when God enters in and becomes human himself. So what do we do with all that? What, how do we respond if all those things are true, and if that is actually reality, what do we do with it? Well, I think quite simply, there's, there's kind of a two-fold response for us. First is this call to believe, and the second is this call to imitate. So first of all, with this idea of belief. So if you're to take Matthew at his word, and you take the early church at their word, and you take the apostles at their word, the call to each and every one of us is to repent and believe. So maybe you're like me. When I was a freshman in college, I went to a college down in Portland called Lewis and Clark College. In my freshman year... Like I have said, I had this vague background of of going to church. I I had heard the story. I I prayed. I had a Bible. I had all those things. But none of this actually had any effect on my life. I didn't actually believe much of it. There's like pieces of it that I did. And and so there came a point in my life where I actually had to respond to that call that we read throughout the entire scriptures, which is repent and believe. Turn away from the things that you used to do and the things that you used to believe and believe what Jesus says is actually true. And so we can't skip over that as, a, as an initial response. And it's not just something that stops at initial faith, either. This call to repent and believe is something that should deepen in, in each one of us every single day. It, this, this commitment to and this seeking after Jesus is something that actually continues to grow and grow every single day. And then after that stage is this call to imitate. So what's really interesting, if you read throughout the New Testament, if you get to the the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes to the Philippians about how they should act in light of the virgin birth. So if you have a Bible, turn to
1: Philippians chapter 2, and we'll just end on this passage. So in Philippians 2, we're going to look at verse 5.
0: Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that
1: Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. For years, I missed what Paul is doing in this passage. Because I got, I got to like the really you
0: know, meaty stuff that you talk about in seminary about how Paul is describing how Jesus becomes human in this passage. And maybe if you're, if you're in some sort of Bible college or in Bible classes, that's what you talk about. And this is a good passage to go to when you want to understand answers to the questions that we've talked about. But, but what Paul's doing here, if, if we can miss it really easily. If you go back and read 1 through 4, you'll see what Paul is pointing to is in verse 5, what I've underlined here. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who? Then he goes on and describes the mindset that Jesus had. So the call, in light of all of this, is to have the same sort of attitude or the same posture or the same mindset as Jesus did when he became human.
1: Which is very difficult. Because if you look at what Paul's describing here, he's telling us to
0: have the same attitude that that doesn't take our high station or or our rights something to use for our own advantage. It calls us to have the same mi- mindset of Christ, who makes himself nothing, who takes on the very nature of a servant. He humbles himself, he becomes obedient. You are called to imitate Christ in humility, in selflessness, in servanthood. We are called to imitate Christ in all of that. The reality is it's really, really hard for us. But that, nonetheless, is the call for each of us. What it means is that I put others' needs above my own. And if you were to go back and read Philippians 2, and I encourage you to if you have time later tonight, even what Paul describes in the verses beforehand, is, is what that process is like. So the reality is, in the future of our culture, we have all kinds of opportunities to practice that and to try to do that. We have the opportunities in front of us. We, we always have had them, but I definitely see them coming in the near future where we have the opportunity to either be selfish and think about ourselves first or to be like Jesus and to be selfless. And we will have the opportunity to protect our own rights or, for the sake of others, lay down our rights. We will have the opportunity to live in the attitude that says, my class or my race or my socioeconomic status must be protected or we have the opportunity to suffer with, to enter into... or maybe a risky situation where we inconvenience ourselves for the sake of our neighbors or maybe even for the sake of our enemies. If God himself, the all-powerful creator God, is utterly independent, if he's willing to become dependent and be born to a poor family under foreign rule, if, if God is able to do that and we are called to have the same mindset as that God, it must cause us to look and think and act differently than other people who don't have that call on their lives. We cannot look and think and act just like everybody else if we we're actually to take Paul's call seriously. You know, to touch on the reality of, of what we talked about earlier with the election, like, it, like Deason was saying, there may be a range of emotions in the room. Some of you may feel vindicated and affirmed, and some of you may feel very scared, or you have friends who are very scared. And regardless of what you think and who you voted for and who you align with, the reality is that, that much of our world seems to be coming apart at the seams. If you like, flip through the news, uh, there's all kinds of, of scary and bad things happening, from protests and protesters getting shot by other protesters, to um, graffiti, like swastikas being drawn, or here in Spokane, that stuff has happened already too, There seems to be some sort of spirit of the age that just is now confronting us with the opportunity to actually put this call into action. And the reality is, there's going to be times where we fail, but that doesn't change the call on us either way. So if we are really to, to be a people who live like that, who are called to do that. We have to have the same mindset as the God who enters into suffering, the same mindset as the God who enters into a poor and ostracized family. And as we'll read about in chapter 2, a family that's actually, uh, they're refugees in a foreign country because of persecution. We'll read about that in two weeks. We're called to have the same mindset, the same readiness, the same attitude as that God. Who does that for us? And then we are called to imitate that. We're called to imitate Jesus in his
1: humility, in his selflessness, in his servanthood. You'd pray with me. God, this is a difficult reality and a difficult call. But we shouldn't expect anything less. We shouldn't expect
0: the call of Jesus to come and pick up our cross and die to ourselves. We shouldn't expect that to be easy. We should expect that to cut against our natural impulses and our natural ways of doing things and our normal first thoughts and situations. And so we turn to you in prayer and, and, and seek and lean into you the need for strength that comes from you. We cannot do any of that on our own. We can't imitate Christ apart from the power that Christ's Spirit gives us. And so we need that power. We need that strength. We need your forgiveness for all the ways that we failed at doing this. We, we don't move forward out of fear trying to, trying to please you we move forward with a sense of honor that we actually get to represent you and represent your way to the world. So God, I pray for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for your compassion towards us, and that you would, through the power of your spirit, propel this group, would you propel River's Edge forward in that, that action of believing and then imitating your, your servanthood, your
1: selflessness, and your humility. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.